Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, it's our annual end-of-the-year episode, featuring Karen Palmer, Senior Fellow here at RFF, and Joseph Micah, Director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Like every year, I'll ask our fantastic guests to highlight the developments in energy and environmental policy that they thought were particularly interesting or important in 2023, what important issues flew under the radar this year, and what they're going to be watching closely in 2024. It's a fun and fast-paced discussion, so stay with us. Joseph Mikut and Karen Palmer from CSIS and RFF. It's wonderful to have you both on our special end of the year podcast. Welcome to both of you to the show. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. Yeah, I second that. <laughs> right. So, so Karen's been on the show before, and our audience, um, you know, knows her a little bit. But Joseph, it's your first time, so welcome. We always ask our guests um, how they ended up working on energy or environmental issues. If you had like early in life inspiration or you got into the stuff later in your life. So what drew you into the field? You come right out of the gate, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Um, it, you know, I'd love to give you the, an answer like, wow, I spent a lot of time when I was a kid hiking and fly fishing, <laughs> uh, both of which are true, but like lots of M&A attorneys do that stuff too, you know? Um, I, I, I think I'm principally motivated and have been motivated for a long time trying to understand, like what I came to learn were our environmental externalities. I think were like very morally offensive to me, even when I was young. Like I remember reading about the um, hole in the ozone layer in elementary school and thinking that was like, and being just like morally aghast. And so I, I think I've always tried to find ways to work on those challenges. Uh, and then my academic career took me through engineering, mathematics, um, and toward public policy over, over the, over its full expression. But I, I would say if like, you're looking for the, the principal motivation, it's trying to understand like, how do we have a, a more fair and, and just world? Yeah, that's that's great. And you you also have academic training as a climate scientist, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I started in engineering and mathematics, and then um, I was really interested in questions of decision theory and uncertainty analysis. And this was in about 2007 when the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes Assessment Report number 4 came out. And they do such a horrific job, or they did such a horrific job at that time working with uncertainty that I thought, well, this is a really cool, important area in which I can provide some additional expertise. So much of my climate science uh, research was focused on sort of bringing mathematical tools that climate scientists uh, weren't always using to to that body of research. I see. That's really interesting. Well, um, today, Joseph, we're going to ask you uh, and Karen to talk about... Um, uh, from your perspective of policy, what have been some of the most interesting developments this year? And what are you going to be thinking about next year as 2024 um, rolls into view? So I'm going to direct this first question to Karen. Um, Karen, 2023, it's been another really interesting year for energy policy. Um, at the federal level, I'm curious what you would think to be the most significant or interesting uh, new development in terms of energy or climate policy. It could be doesn't have to be a policy. It could be a law. It could be implementation of an existing law. It could be a Supreme Court ruling. What have you found particularly compelling this year? So, Daniel, I think um, the way I would answer that question is the policy development that stands out the most for me is a thing that didn't happen in 2023, or maybe it's better to say didn't happen yet. 
And that's legislation to address the various regulatory or permitting or maybe other barriers to investment in energy infrastructure. I mean, we all know that addressing climate change is going to require massive and unprecedented investment in clean sources of energy like renewables, the grid, hydrogen production and pipelines, among um, other types of facilities. And the Inflation Reduction Act provides important economic incentives um, in the form of tax credits for many of these crucial investments. But achieving all the investments needed to meet our national climate goals in a timely fashion is going to require overcoming various obstacles, um, supply chain, cost increases, lengthy interconnection queues for new generation, and in several cases, streamlining federal permitting approval processes. And as a part of the political negotiations that went into passing the Inflation Reduction Act in 2022, there was an agreement between the Biden administration and Senator Joe Manchin to consider an advanced legislation that would accelerate permitting of energy infrastructure. And one of the aspects of that proposal was a special focus on 25 priority energy projects designated by the president. There are other aspects as well. That bill didn't pass the Senate, and there were many other bills that were um, designed to address similar issues that were introduced in 2023, but none of has made it over the finishing line. Um, so this this policy discussion's not over, but the lack of progress this year, I think, is probably slowing the pace at which the promises of the IRA are going to be delivered. That's a really great answer. Joseph, uh, how about you? Well, I I have to say that Karen's answer is spectacular, right? The absence of permanent reform is 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 huge and growing story. You know, for me, I'm this is the year where we watch the IRA start to take effect. The Inflation Reduction Act is this massive basket of subsidies meant to support clean energy production, uh, manufacturing and clean energy supply chains here in the United States. And this was our first sort of like full calendar year to watch to see if this would do anything because it passed in in summer 2022. And I think that that story has been relatively mixed. We see a lot of um, really big announcements for um, battery manufacturing facilities for EVs. We've seen pretty major announcements um, in terms of the assembly of solar panel modules here in the U.S., like there, there is a growing sense that the IRA, particularly on the manufacturing side of things, is working. And yet we've seen incredible political tensions in the United States about how it is working, right? So um, right now the U.S. and China are in sort of a new era of geoeconomic or geopolitical um, competition. These technologies are viewed on, on both sides of the Pacific as sort of strategic and important for both climate goals and long-term energy security. And so the U.S. is facing kind of deep questions about how much do we want to integrate this supply chain with technology from Chinese firms, which are often state-backed, but often are better than what uh, U.S. firms can produce, cheaper, more reliable, higher capacity batteries, et cetera. And so we've also started to see, I think, some fractures around the, the good news of, of the IRA working. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see a lot of political contests and maybe some tough decisions about how do we want decarbonization in the United States to look? Yeah, that's another great answer. Now I'd love to ask each of you the same question. What's something that you found particularly interesting 
that happened at the World of Energy and Environmental Policy this year, or something that didn't happen, but this time outside of the United States. So Joseph, let's start with you for this one. Um, I have to go to Europe and say that in October of, of 2023, Europe officially um, started enforcing its carbon border adjustment, or CBAM. This is a policy which is meant to harmonize European imports with its domestic carbon pricing system. So domestic manufacturers in Europe pay a carbon price for their greenhouse gas emissions, and now imports into Europe are going to have to do the same. This is a shift from previous policies, but I think it's really important on a few different axes. One, it moves the European carbon pricing model more toward the like sort of textbook um, climate policies that we, we, we talk about. And so we get a chance to see, is this really going to work? Um, two, it um, has caused a lot of, I would say, like political introspection here in the United States about, you know, what, how do we want um, our relationship with the trade system to work in a world that is trying to decarbonize? And there's been some pretty fervent opposition coming from uh, emerging markets and, and large manufacturing countries, China, India, even Brazil, um, are looking to oppose that tool at the World Trade Organization. They uh, Brazil brought it up at COP and tried to um, raise holy hell about it there. And so, you know, what what we think about is these sort of like economically good tools to use do have to work in the in the political world. And I think Europe is taking a pretty big step forward in a way that appears to me to be completely justifiable from a policy standpoint, from a domestic politics standpoint. Um, and now we need to see how they're going to manage it internationally. And, and I've written a little bit on our, the CSIS website about you know, how I think the U.S. should try and engage with the CBAM and, and think about it as a, as a model for our, for our own future climate policies. But I'd love to see uh, the U.S. be uh, you know, pretty supportive of Europe in this regard because it's a tool I think we're going to need in the toolbox as we look at global decarbonization. Yeah. And it has been proposed in the U.S. as well. There was there was a bill, um, Senators Kramer and um, I'm blanking on the other senator, but is that right, Joseph? Yeah, I think you know there there's a there's sort of residual interest in the U.S. on on sort of linking carbon and trade. I wouldn't say that every bill we see is technically a carbon border adjustment. Um, you know, you can come. There's like I would say a, there's a spectrum of policies. There's carbon tariffs, which is just saying we don't want to import carbon intense goods and we're going to raise uh, a tariff on those. Um, sometimes that bothers like the more economically minded folks in the audience and is pretty inconsistent with WTO practices. Um, you've got border adjustments where there's some domestic policy that is driving decarbonization, whether that's regulatory or a carbon price or a cap and trade system. And you just need to like harmonize that domestic tax with um, your import policies. Countries do this all the time with like value added taxes and other things. And so it's, you know, moving it to carbon is is um, a new thing, but it but it's not completely unrecognizable. Um, and then the, the other thing we see proposed is is sort of like climate clubs, right? Sort of countries working together on decarbonization and sanctioning out members of the club with various kinds of trade sanctions. These are all kind of tools of varying severity, legality, and um, political possibility. Yeah. Great. Okay. So Joseph took us to Europe. Karen, where would you like to take us? So um, 
one answer I could give to this question is what Joseph said, <laughs> because I was also um, focused on Europe. You know, most of my work at RFF is domestic. So I was talking to some of my colleagues and there was kind of uniformity that the implementation of the CBAM is the biggest thing. I guess to go just a little bit deeper on elements of that policy, my understanding is the initial transitional phase, which I believe lasts until the end of 2025, the focus is on reporting emissions intensity and um, you know, eventually there'll be uh, the requirement of, of a payment like surrender of CBAM certificates that would be priced in line with the allowances. But during this reporting phase, it's sort of an opportunity to gather information and develop baselines and learn a bit about how to go about implementing this policy. And I think that's important for understanding across the globe. And also, I think um, there it has triggered many other countries to think about things, not just in the, the trade policy context, but also in terms of considering, well, maybe we should do something domestically to address greenhouse gas emissions that would get us more in line with what this policy is going to eventually look like. So, you know, but even if they aren't doing carbon pricing themselves, you know, the existence of this policy is going to lead to better measurement of greenhouse gases associated with particular sectors, you know, these energy intensive um, sectors like cement, iron and steel, aluminum, fertilizers, electricity, and hydrogen. And um, those broader discussions, I think, are important to making global progress. Yeah, that's a great point, right? That the administrative task that like firms and importers now face is, is I, as I understand it, pretty significant. And so the first couple of years of just sort of figuring out how the accounting works are going to be really, really important. Um that is one of the places where I think the U.S. government could be particularly helpful to our own firms in thinking through what are the standards that we should have here that make it pretty easy to then bring a bring a piece of paper that the Europeans trust uh, when you're you know importing steel or hydrogen or chemical products or whatever it may be. Great. So um, each of you have given us really great answers on kind of big headline topics uh, here in the United States and uh, and in Europe. I'm curious now if each of you could identify something that you think might have flown a little bit under the radar, something that may have been under-discussed this year that you think is really interesting or important um, related to energy or environmental policy. Uh, let's start with Karen this time. Great. Thanks. So I think that um, perhaps one of the most enduring and important developments that's under the radar this year is the issuance of the new benefit cost guidelines from the Office of Management and budget in a document known as Circular A4. So, you know, this document provides guidance to the agencies as they develop regulatory impact analyses of significant regulations. And this new guidance, which comes, I believe, something like 20 years after the last update, contains new recommendations on things like discount rates that the agencies should use to align with the best practices in economics, which have been evolving over that time period. And generally, the recommendations lead toward putting more weight on future benefits from regulations. And that's something that's particularly important for evaluating climate benefits from a whole host of regulations, which, as we know, unfold over time, given the whole stock nature of greenhouse gas emissions impacts. 
Another thing that this guidance does is direct agencies to use population-specific epidemiology when measuring the health benefits of a regulation. And in general, it, it places more emphasis on the consideration of distributional impacts of policies. So in that spirit, the guidance supports agencies that choose to experiment, for example, with weights in social welfare calculations to reflect, you know, differential impacts of certain policies on populations with different income profiles. So it'd be interesting to um, see how that plays out in the future, but I think it's really important. Absolutely. Yeah, that circular A4 is, is so important. And um, we actually touched on topics related to that just recently in the podcast. We had Ann Wolverton from the Environmental Protection Agency on the show, and we talked about how EPA is now incorporating environmental justice considerations into its sort of benefit cost analysis. And, and circular A4 is certainly, certainly part of that. So Joseph, how about you? What's something that you think is really interesting, but that's been a little bit under the radar? Um, I would say First of all, it's an incredible question. I one thing I've been looking at with colleagues here at CSIS is sort of the the this like rise of a new resource nationalism. So when, when we think about the energy transition, we're we're all now sort of familiar with the idea. Of, okay, you move from a system that's really heavy in oil and coal and natural gas to one where we're going to need to produce a lot of lithium and nickel and cobalt and and those supply chains are really different. One of the things we've seen come over the last few years is is uh, a rising trend where resource-rich countries, like Indonesia is the highlight example, are starting expressing a new resource nationalism. They're saying, we don't want to just import this, like be an extraction hub and, and, and sell raw ore to processors and manufacturers abroad. We want to move up the supply chain of value here, right? Because the whole world's moving toward decarbonization. So if, if you can add more value and build manufacturing facilities in your country, um, then you get a bigger slice of this sort of new economic pie, and and that's it's been it's really you know sort of counterintuitively, this is something that the U.S. is trying to capture, uh, because our challenge uh, when you think from an energy security or geopolitical frame is like, you know, all those mineral supply chains are almost wholly dominated by by China, and so resource nationalism is not necessarily our worst enemy at the moment. If we're trying to think through how do we diversify, how do we support the efforts of countries that want to have first step or second step manufacturing in their country, um, and does that create a more diversified supply chain for the U.S. And, and its allies to draw upon, and one that will just be frankly more resilient and able to grow faster to meet decarbonization needs? That I, you know, that's I think been a really interesting under the radar trend that we might see more of going forward is how these resource rich countries want to capture value from the resources that they have and the, they know that the world needs going forward. That's such an interesting answer. And I, um, I'm also going to be watching that closely here in the U.S. because there's interest, of course, in extracting lithium here, processing lithium here, you know, finding other critical minerals through waste streams for coal, for example. Uh, and I am really interested in how that is going to affect communities because in the United States, just like many other parts of the world, the places where extraction occurs, extraction of oil, gas, and coal, those are not necessarily the places that benefit the most from the use of those commodities. And so it'll be interesting to see if um, a similar dynamic emerges uh, in the era of uh, a more mineral-intensive energy system. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's like highly tied to questions of just transition and how do you look at, are we s selling hot air or can you really create like 
transitions that involve employment and and jobs and local economic benefit in this like new economy. I think it's like very, very interesting. And now a word from our sponsor. Hi, it's me, Daniel Ramey again. That's right. Resources Radio doesn't have any sponsors. We depend on listeners like you to make our show possible. If you're enjoying today's episode, please consider making a donation to RFF. Visit rff.org support to donate online and find out other ways to contribute. Thanks. So, um, all right, we've been talking about uh, the past year over the last 20 minutes or so. Let's look ahead. Uh, so 2024 is uh, right around the corner. Listeners, by the time you're listening to this, it probably is 2024. I should note that uh, today is December 20th when we're recording this. So if anything really exciting happens in the next couple of weeks, uh, it's not our fault. Um, so looking to the future, Joseph, let's start with you. Can you pick one energy or environmental topic that you're going to be watching really closely this year? Help us understand its significance. And if you wish, feel free to prognosticate. Yeah, sure. I would. Um, I'm actually going to ask for two. Okay. And they're related. Um, the the central thing I want to spend a lot of time looking at and working on over the next year is sort of the the implications for U.S. energy policy of our like a, of I'll just say in shorthand a successful Inflation Reduction Act. You know, we've got this. We're in this era where there's sort of a bipartisan consensus. We want to move manufacturing back into the U.S. We want to have, we want to be at the technological frontier for chips, for clean energy goods, for you know pharmaceuticals, and because of the energy crisis in Europe, we're seeing just like massive uh, manufacturing investment figures in the United States. And the reality of that is, uh, making a lot of stuff requires a lot of energy. <laughs> and so, how much this renaissance of manufacturing is going to change our energy forecasts and our needs, how it's going to affect our plans for decarbonization, and how much it's going to affect like fundamental reliability, I think is really, really interesting. If you, if you look at the case of Texas from the last couple of years because of population trends, uh, because of economic growth there, you've seen that that electricity, the power system there has gotten strained. It's failed at different times. It's still at fairly high risk. And that could become the story for a lot of the U.S., and, and I think that's going to be an, an important thing for all of us to watch. Like, how do we actually meet the needs of this renaissance on the energy side while still achieving climate goals? Relatedly, we need to think carefully about the role that the U.S. plays in the global energy system. Here I'm thinking particularly about expanding LNG export capacity, which is both going to be a big political debate over the coming years um, because in the aftermath of the European energy crisis, we've seen we're seeing a huge expansion of that capacity. The U.S. plays a really significant role in global energy security, yet there are climate implications to this and potentially domestic market implications. People can make a lot of money selling LNG outside the United States, but how is that going to play with this sort of new sense of demand and, and manufacturing of important goods? I, I think that's going to be a really rich conversation, and and we'll see kind of different dynamics um, arise over time. And I think that's the thing to watch next year. I'm also really interested to see in the LNG space, whether sort of political pressure 
from um, climate advocates starts to affect the way that the Biden administration is permitting these facilities. Um, I think they're getting a lot of pressure on it right now. And given the way poll numbers are looking, um, I, I, I'm curious to see if there's any political response to that. Yeah, you'll notice I skirted the fact that we have an election upcoming, which I'm sure is going to invoke energy issues at all times. But, um, you know, I you know, we don't want to be just in the business of fact checking all of the election, the campaigning, you know. You don't think, Joseph, that the energy debate on the political stage is going to be as nuanced as our conversation today? I, I don't think so. But I do expect that it will reveal significant differences in priorities. Hmm. Seems seems plausible. Um, OK, Karen, how about you? What are you going to be watching this year? So I'm also going to pick two, but I'll, I'll try to be quick about them. Um, the first one is EPA's final rule under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act that um, specifies emission guidelines for various categories of coal and natural gas generators, and that um, would put into motion a process where states would be required to develop compliance plans for achieving those guidelines. I think this is um, important because it's a complement to the tax incentives for clean energy that were included in the IRA because it addresses emissions directly. And this is also the third attempt by a, an administration to do this. And prior attempts in this space, which were both very different, but have faced court challenges. And I think the um, language of those decisions have had um, important um, impacts on the shape of this rule, but I'm interested in seeing how the various provisions like to include special exemptions for rarely operated plants to keep online for reliability purposes evolve and really just what the final rule and the final deadlines look like. The other thing that I'm going to be watching is to see what the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission includes in its final intra-regional transmission planning rule that's expected from the agency sometime early in 2024. This is another example of sort of progressive rulemaking. There have been rules in the past and they haven't had the desired effect. And frankly, long distance transmission planning has been a really tough nut to crack. And there's a variety of reasons for this, you know, cost allocation of those new lines, perhaps threats to the profits of incumbent generators in certain areas, and more generally, the decentralized jurisdictional planning and permitting over electricity that we, you know, for natural gas pipelines, this is more centralized federally, but in, for um, transmission, it's decentralized. So this rule is much awaited and will hopefully pave the way for greater investment in new transmission lines. And also, I think, for improving incentives for low-cost approaches to increasing the power throughput on the existing grid through um, certain types of investments in technological improvements and information gathering that can happen there. So those are two things I'm watching for. Excellent. Really great answers. Um, so we just have a little bit of time left, but I'd love to ask you now, before we go to our top of the stack segment, to each reflect on something that maybe has happened at the state or local level that you think is particularly important that either happened last year or maybe it's going to happen in 2024. We've been talking mostly at the federal U.S. level, at the European Union level. Um, but what's something that's more localized that you think is really important? Um, Karen, let's start with you. Yeah, again, I want to mention two things. Um, one is the rules and regulations to implement the New York Cap and Invest, which is also known as a NICI program. And this is one of several policies and programs that the state is developing to achieve the goals of its landmark um, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that was signed into law in 2019. So these rules are important, um, not only for what they'll 
mean for New York, but um, they also could be a model for future carbon pricing regimes in other states in the East, where, you know, the East, um, there is carbon pricing that goes on. It's mainly focused on uh, electricity generators. This would be going broader and in different directions. But the second thing I do want to mention is relevant to the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, and that is I'm looking to see what the agreement looks like that comes out of the ongoing program review for this program with regard to both um, future caps in the program and future design elements. The Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI, as it's affectionately known, has historically been at the forefront of innovations in cap and trade policy design, and it pioneered features like using auctions to distribute allowances, using price floors in those auctions, and introducing price steps in the allowance supply curve, which is important because it makes the program impactful and helps it work well. Um, and continue to have robust prices when there's other state policies to advance um, decarbonization as well. And what we've seen in Reggie in the um, recent allowance auctions is a steady increase in the allowance prices. And that suggests that the market is um, believing that the program is going to continue to be important as you know, several states that are participating are have very ambitious decarbonization targets going forward. So they definitely see Reggie playing a role, but I look forward to seeing how the program evolves in the next round with respect to program design decisions. Excellent. Thanks, Karen. Joseph, how about you? I am very interested to learn more about what states are doing on electric vehicle deployment. One of the biggest uncertainties I think we have in the medium term for climate and energy issues is how quickly does the American consumer embrace electric vehicles? Um, everything from e-bikes to the uh, Cybertruck. Um, and and, and I, I just I don't personally feel like I have a good handle on um, how different states are, are acting, what they can do to accelerate uptake, what consumers really need to see and how they deal with the grid balancing issues and charging stations and all the other things that have to be financed to, to make that a full ecosystem. That is a place where I think states have a lot of authority. There's clearly states that want to have leadership position in that space. And so I'm, I'm looking to watch that in the coming year. That will be really fascinating to watch. And, and as someone who is in the market for a new vehicle myself, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot myself. And Michigan, it turns out, doesn't have a whole lot in the way of incentives. So let's go now, Joseph and Karen, to our top of the stack segment, where we ask you to recommend something that you think is really great. It could be related to the environment and energy or not. We're not that picky. Um, so Joseph, let's start with you. What's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? I have been reading David Brooks's new book, How to Know a Person. Um, and why I think it's relevant to this conversation is um, it's about the sort of restoring our personal ability to hear another person's perspective without being actively threatened, to try and understand the world from their perspective a little bit better in a patient and inquisitive way. And, be, you know, we kind of we danced around it earlier, but it's no secret that energy and climate issues in the United States are like hotly polarized. People have very, very strong feelings on sort of like any axis of debate. And I think for for those of us in the analytical community, it's really important to be able to, you know, like listen intently and understand the perspective of the person on the other side of the table or, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, chirping at you on on X, formerly Twitter. Um, 
and I think that that's a like I you know it's a good time to be a little bit reflective, a little bit look carefully at your own practices and see if you can become a slightly better person in 2024. I love that answer. And um, uh, just one second. I haven't read that book, but I've read several of his others and, and always find them insightful, um, especially during the holidays. You know, it's a nice time when we can all be patient with perspectives that may be different from ours. Uh, Karen, how about you? What's at the top of your stack? Well, first, let me say that's a great recommendation, Joseph. And when my kid who gets home today from grad school asks, what do you want for Christmas, mom? That's what I'm going to tell him because he can get it overnight. <laughs> Better gift for you than a college kid. Yeah. <laughs> Got you that new David Brooks, son. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm going to suggest a podcast. So over the past few weeks, I've been listening to The Big Dig, which is a nine episode podcast produced by WGBH, uh, a public media company in Boston about the project to bury the central artery, which was formerly an elevated section of Interstate 93 cut through downtown Boston. And the project took roughly 25 years to plan and complete. I guess it's they started planning in 1982, which is the year after I graduated from college. So the um, podcast producers look at the project as an embodiment of um, broader U.S. cynicism about our inability to build large infrastructure projects. So I think it's an important listen for this time. Um, it looks at the role of politics, communities, contractors, personalities in the planning and execution of this massive public works project. I have a connection to Boston, having lived just outside in the city of Brookline during the project planning phase and being a frequent visitor during the construction phase where you had to get from the airport other places while this was going on. And, and now I really enjoy the results, but I do think that there are um, some important lessons from this experience that are featured in the podcast. So I'd invite your listeners to check it out. That sounds fantastic. Well, um, Karen and Joseph, like we were saying before we started taping, we could talk about this stuff for hours and hours, and it certainly wouldn't get old. But I hope our listeners have enjoyed uh, at least a brief conversation of some of the most important trends over the last year and, and some interesting stuff we'll be watching. Joseph and Karen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Happy New Year to both of you. Happy holidays. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you, Dan. Happy New Year. Yeah, same. Happy New Year to everyone. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.